Let's turn our Bibles to Revelation 11. We're reading the first three verses. And I honestly must say I'm I'm looking forward tonight. This is, uh, there's a lot of meat here. Revelation 11, first three verses. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Please be seated. Well, I'm very happy to be with you tonight. I'm very appreciative of your presence with us this evening. If you're visiting with us, we're very happy to have you, and we're always very grateful for times such as this where we can come together and study and worship God, sing praises to His wonderful name. We turn to Revelation chapter 11 tonight, and we continue our Sunday night seminar as we uh, are looking at this great book of the Bible. Sunday night seminar is conducted just a little bit differently. The lesson is it's sort of a combination of sermon and lecture and and discussion, and I don't know exactly what to call it other than a seminar. And we've been studying this great book of the Bible because there have been so many that have requested it. They've requested this study, the book of Revelation. We find ourselves in Revelation chapter 11 tonight. Thank you, Daniel, for singing this evening, beautiful singing, uh, for the fine fervent scriptural prayers. Rick, we thank you for that. And for each who participated, Marvin, for the reading, participated in our worship tonight. We're very grateful and happy to have everyone with us this evening. If you do not have this uh, handout sheet, you might raise your hand, and these deacons are positioned throughout the auditorium, and they'll get you a copy of uh, the handout. And I, I suggest it because it has a lot of information that otherwise we would not be able to cover in the short time that we're able to talk about it tonight. So we try to prepare this for your benefit, and I hope that you'll keep them and read them and add notes to them and that kind of thing. I haven't been saying much about this. I never have said much about it. But um, a number of years ago, Carol and I started uh, Laws Publishing, and we uh, do this mainly for home Bible studies. And then we went from that to uh, a web page on the different books of the Bible. And so if you have an interest in this and would like to know more, you can go to lawspublishing.com and then click on the, the link to Revelation where I have summarized each chapter of the book of Revelation. So there's a summary there of each of the chapters if you'd like to see that. Again, everything on that is absolutely free. We, we don't get anything out of it except a labor of love. And we have done hundreds of home Bible studies because of it. And we still have uh, many, I can't tell you exactly how many ongoing home Bible studies we have from that right now, but we've been doing that for a number of years. And so if you're interested in that, you have that reference as well. Chapter 11 begins this discussion about measuring the temple and the two witnesses. And one of the things that we've learned already is that uh, there is this interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. 
we had an interlude between the opening of the sixth and the seventh seal. And now at the seventh seal, as it opened, there were seven trumpets. And now we had this interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, and the seventh trumpet is about to sound. And it sounds in the eleventh chapter. But in this particular instance, the interlude has been encouraging the church to do two things, really. One, appreciate the message of God and appropriate the message of God. Uh, We studied that last Sunday night as we were going over the 10th chapter. And there was the little book that John was told to eat. And the angel warned him, said, now when you eat this book, it's going to have both a bitter and a sweet taste to it. To the mouth it'll be very sweet, but to the stomach it'll be very, very bitter. And we examined that, noticing that the message of the Word of God was a sweet taste in the mouth. But once one sees that and experiences the truth of God's Word, he also experiences the fact that there are many people who reject the Word of God and will not listen to the Word of God and will not accept it. And so tonight we look at more of an examination of themselves. And the church is to examine itself and to learn whether it is actually in the faith or not, as Paul would admonish all of us to do, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. And so in that instance, we see that they are to examine themselves to see what, whether they are in the faith, and then they are to preach the Word of God. Go on preaching the Word of God regardless of the circumstances and the situation. Martin Kendall, in his uh, commentary on Revelation, said at once the most difficult and the most important in all of the book of Revelation. That's the 11th chapter. Bruce Metzger has been generously acknowledged to be one of the most perplexing sections of the entire book, he says. The discussion with regard to measuring the temple and the two witnesses may be a good summary of the entire book of Revelation. And in so doing, may give us the very key to the book. As we look at Revelation 11 and 15... Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud, loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's a good verse to hang your hat on with regard to the meaning of the book of Revelation, that Christ is victorious, and his people are victorious even over great persecution and great suffering that they might face. The reason chapter 11 is so difficult is because so many people try to literalize the symbols in the book and in this chapter. Now, if you're going to try to literalize all these symbols that we read tonight, study tonight, you've got a hopeless task. You're going to be in a quagmire that you'll never be able to extricate yourself from. You're never going to be able to, with certainty, identify each of these items that you read in Revelation 11. The reason it's so difficult... There are so many people that want to literalize this and talk about the literal Jews and the literal temple, the literal city, a literal period of time. It is a symbolic book, and it is one whose message is clear, though I may not be able to identify every particular item with regard to the symbols. There are four important points to take away from Revelation chapter 11. The first point is the heavenly measurement the measurement of the temple. Then we want to spend time with identifying God's witnesses as they appear in the chapter. Then the seventh trumpet will sound, 
And then we'll look at God's assurance and the reward which God has promised to all those who love and obey Him. So that's where we are tonight, and that's what we want to learn. And when we learn this in Revelation chapter 11, we're really looking at the heart of the book of Revelation. Notice, first of all, the heavenly measurement. And as you read verses 1 and 2, three things are to be measured. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told... Rise and measure, first of all, measure the temple, he says, the temple of God. And, he says, measure the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. That's verse 1 and 2. He's talking about God's divine measurement. A rod is a standard, a standard of measure. And he tells John, I want you to measure three things. Measure the temple, measure the altar, and measure those who worship in it. Well, when those first century Christians read this from the book of Revelation, they read this as John had written it down and as it had been revealed to him by Christ. Immediately, they're going to think about the church. Measure the temple. Well, in their mind, what was the temple? It wasn't the Jewish temple that he had in mind here. It was the church of the living God. Sometimes people forget the fact that the Lord's temple today is the New Testament church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and let's read just a a verse of Scripture or two that might help us understand that. It starts back there in verse 16. Do you not know that that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Well, we can go through the pages of the New Testament and identify that matter. It comes up for us again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But I think I choose to go to Ephesians chapter 3, or chapter 2, and study the matter once again, as it's plainly stated for us, that the church of the Lord is the temple of God. We do not have an old Solomonic temple in which to worship. That's the Old Testament dispensation. Living under the New Testament dispensation, we have the temple of God, which is the New Testament church. I'm in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. And in that particular uh, uh, verse, I want to notice verse 20. And uh, I probably start at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're the family of God, you see. Notice verse 20 built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so it is the temple of God, the church of the living God. Now many other passages could be identified and and could be discussed in this particular matter, but when he talks about measure the temple with a rod, he's talking about measure the church. And hasn't he already done that? You'll remember in chapter 2 and chapter 3 how he addressed the seven churches of Asia and how he measured them inside and out. He said, I know thy works. I know what you're doing. I know what you're not doing. And he commended them on some things, and he rebuked them on other things, and he knew their work only like God could know it. And that's the same way as it is with us tonight. God knows our work. And He knows what we're doing and what we're not doing. He measured those churches. He's telling the church of the Lord 
you are being measured by the Word of God. It is not only the temple that's being measured, it's the altar that's being measured in Revelation chapter 11. There are three things that are being measured. And what was the altar but the worship of the church? The Old Testament altar was a place of worship in the old tabernacle, and then later in the temple of Solomon, and then later in the time of Christ, the Herodian temple that was a refurbishing of the old Solomon's temple and the rebuilding of it in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. And now the altar upon which he refers is the worship of the New Testament church, which takes place in the church. Measure that. Measure to see if your worship is really what it ought to be. In fact, every child of God, an obedient child of God, been obedient to the gospel of Christ, is described as a priest. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 13 and 15. We offer sacrifices of praise to God by the fruit of our lips. You see, we offer our own sacrifice, our own praise to God as priests of God, obedient children of God, in the church of God, in the temple of God. This Old Testament terminology is carried over, but it's applied to the church and the worship of the church. And every church should measure its worship by the Word of God. Is the worship in accordance with the Scripture? Is it in accordance with the pattern that we read in the pages of the New Testament? Well, John says the church should measure itself. Measure itself with the rod that God gave, the standard that God gave. The church measures itself, its worship is to be measured, and those who are in the church, the worshipers, are to be measured. It's a phrase referring to the individuals themselves. They are to be measured with regard to the measurement that God has given. And it is a personal type of measurement. The heavenly measurement that we read of in Revelation chapter 11 is not a literal measuring of the old Solomonic temple. It is a measuring of the temple of the New Testament, the church of the living God, and the worship that it engages in and the people that are involved in that worship. A personal type of judgment is being referenced in the measurement. Notice in uh, Romans chapter 14, a passage that you and I need to keep uh, always before us. Verse 12, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You ought to underline that passage. It's Revelation 14 and 12. And it talks about the measurement which God is going to give with regard to the day of judgment. God's going to judge us some great day, the final day. And we better be measuring ourselves up against the Word of God to see how well we measure up. And we might pause and ask the question as we examine Revelation 11, 1 and 2. How well do I measure up to God's divine standard? How well does the church measure up? Consider our worship. Is it according to the Word of God, the divine measure? Me as a personal individual, as a child of God, how well am I measuring up to God's holy and divine standard? The reason it is to be measured is for their own protection. God does not count them as His until they are measured and meet the standard. And so He's telling them to measure the temple, the church, and measure their worship and measure the individuals to see whether they really belong to God. Then I was given a measuring rod. It is a divine rod, a divine standard, like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God, which is the church, and the altar, which is their worship, and those who worship there. 
But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. You see, they're not part of God's people. They never named the name of Christ. You know, when a police officer gets ready for duty, he's measured for a uniform. And a soldier has a uniform that he puts on. When he gets ready, he gets measured for uh, his uniform and the equipment that he's going to use for battle. A football player, he has his uniform. He has his equipment that he uses. An astronaut gets measured for a spacesuit. Now, this is what God is saying. Get ready, protect. You will be protected if you belong to God. You're being measured. I'm told in the Oklahoma Territory that if you rode your horse or carry, uh, rode your wagon, drove your wagon out there to a certain spot of ground, that you could take your stake and drive it into the earth, and that would be staking your claim. That would be your territory. That would be your property during the great land rush of the Oklahoma Territory. Well, that's what God is doing here. God is staking his claim. And he's saying in Revelation chapter 11, these people belong to me. They've been measured by my divine standard. The temple has been measured. The altar has been measured. That is their worship. And they themselves individually have been measured. And they have met the measurement. And they belong to me. And now they are protected by me. That is the heavenly measurement. God says this is what you should do. Prepare yourself as persecution is going to come. Now we have the matter of the two witnesses. And a lot of discussion has been given to this particular section, which begins in verse 3 and continues all the way down to verse 13. Now I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed with sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Verse 4. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Verse 5. And a lot of discussion has been given as per the meaning of who are the two witnesses. And everybody has been suggested. Some suggest, well, one's Elijah and the other's Christ. Or one says, one's the Old Testament, one's the New Testament. Some people have said, well, it's the gospel itself. Some talk about it as being the life of the Christian. I rather choose to think if the two, the number two is a literal two, then he's talking about the apostles and the Holy Spirit. These are the two witnesses. And I'll tell you more about that particular moment, about that in a moment. The Holy Spirit did testify or witness through these apostles. In fact, if you turn to John chapter 15, about verse 26... You see a watershed type of passage there relating to the delegation of this divine authority to the apostles of Christ. He says in verse 26 of the chapter that when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit bore witness of Christ. Many times through the pages of the Bible, the Bible refers to the apostles and the Holy Spirit working together to witness about the resurrected Christ. If you'll notice in Acts chapter 5 and 32, the apostle Peter, aided with the Holy Spirit, talks about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And I would love to talk about this sermon, but I must confine myself to that verse, verse 32, because it does address itself to the very point that we're making tonight. 
And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. And so he's talking about the matter of the resurrected Christ and the exaltation of Christ. And Peter's saying, we were witnesses to that fact. And so is the Holy Spirit witness to that fact. The two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11, I think simply, would be the Holy Spirit working through the apostles, testifying and witnessing to the fact of the resurrected Christ and the life of Jesus Christ. Let's see if we can find another passage which lends itself to that consideration. It's found for us in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Let's notice a couple of verses here, particularly verses 1 through 3. And again, notice the close connection and relationship between God the Holy Spirit and the apostles as they were revealing the will of God. A very interesting section found for us in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. You see, he's a bona fide, verified witness. I saw it, I heard it. Which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and had touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Notice as we turn over to about verse 5, or chapter 5, I want to look at chapter 5. Again, I have to limit myself on this matter. This verse 7 is an interesting verse. For there are three that testify, verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If you look at chapter 1 and you look at chapter 5, it's very clear that John is saying, as an apostle, we saw, we heard, we handled of the truth of life. He also goes on to say the Holy Spirit was with us in this matter. He revealed this particular matter. The two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 would be the apostles and the teaching they received through God the Holy Spirit. Now, notice this particular matter. We'll work a little more on this as, as, uh, as we go along. If the two in Revelation 11 is not literal... You see, I took it as being a literal number, one, two. But if the two is not literal in Revelation chapter 11, then it would have to include the teaching of the apostles aided by the Holy Spirit and the continued teaching of the New Testament church. If the two there is not to be literalized, but to say those who are witnesses to the matter, then you're looking at the continued understanding and concept of the continued testimony which the early church gave about the life of Christ. I rather choose to think in Revelation chapter 11 that the two that's being referenced there is the literal two. He's talking about two witnesses. And then I go back to these various New Testament passages and I say, yeah, there were two witnesses to the life of Christ. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. The apostles witnessed this matter, John chapter, 1 John chapter 1. They were given this great revelation, John chapter 14 and 26. They testified of these particular matters, Acts chapter 5 and 32. It was the apostles and aided by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that they were able to give us these particular matters and these particular truths. But there are two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Verse 4. 
Here you'd have to have the support which these particular matters would be given to the truth. These olive trees support the truth, symbolizing the support that God gives to the Word of God. Let me deal with their persecution in a moment. I want to go on to verse 5 and verse 6. Notice in this particular matter that he talks about the power to prevail. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. This is not to be taken literally. This is a a reference to the uh, support that God gives them that they may prevail over the matter. But you can notice how that Satan is not going to allow this to go unchallenged. So the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God through this period of time, supported by God, is challenged by the beast that rises out of the bottomless pit, verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. He'll do his best to persecute and try to destroy the particular matter. Their bodies, in verse 8, are on the streets, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. They will rejoice, verse 10 says, over the death, over the persecution of these who stand before God. But yet, in verse 11 and 12, there seems to be a revival. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And what is he speaking of other than the Word of God prevails? Regardless of the persecution that might come upon the church, regardless of the persecution that might come upon the people of God for the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, the Word of God will ultimately be victorious. It will prevail. You can't stop God. You can't win when you fight against God. No matter how you might try to persecute the church of God and persecute the truth of God, the truth will prevail as we see it prevailing here in symbolic terms. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And so you see the word of God prevailing, and the church of the Lord prevailing, even though they were faced with great persecution, severe at the time. And yet, it indicates total victory of God's word. No matter how you try to persecute the witnesses, The message of the truth prevails and cannot be changed. By verse 13, you have an earthquake, something that they were very familiar with. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And in this very vivid scene, we see the breakup, I think, of an old ancient pagan world that no longer is going to survive because God has decided it is enough. And even though these people may turn to God, they are not converted to God. And in verse 13, they have some reference to that. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven, but they really were not converted to God himself. Now let me pause just for a minute and let's summarize what we've done here. 
Maybe we can put some of these pieces together. The sanctuary, the sanctified, I should say, I guess, its worshipers are protected by God. They have been measured and they have met God's divine standard and thus are protected by Him. And even though protected, there is a terrible, tyrannical type of persecution that comes upon them, opposition to the Word of God. Despite the persecution, God's witnesses, the apostles, and the revealing, the teaching of the Holy Spirit would contain uh, the testimony that would ultimately be victorious. Many expositors see periods of history in chapter 11, and it is well worth our time to take a brief moment and look at this, and it might help us in some of the details that we've read. Notice verses 3 through 6, how that you have the two witnesses. And many have said this really summarizes the apostolic age. When in the apostolic age you had the apostles preaching and teaching the work of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit at that day and time, verses 3 and 6, and the gospel was going out, and in turn uh, many were being converted to the message of Christ. By the time you get to verses 7 through 10, some look at that and they say, well, that surely shows a period of apostasy and digression where you see them trying, the beast rises out of the bottomless pit and destroys or tries to destroy the witnesses. This surely shows a time of digression, a time of apostasy, a dark day, the death of the witnesses. By the time you get to verses 11 through 13, a summary type of fashion regarding the restoration of the preaching of the Word of God. And there the witnesses are revived, and the message begins to be propagated again, proclaimed again, preached again, and out throughout the world, and people are listening and responding to the Word of God. 3 through 13, God's witnesses. There is the last trumpet. Now that we've come to verse 14, the text says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That's a beautiful passage. I have it marked in my Bible. I could very well say that it's the very heart of the book of Revelation. By the time you look at this, you begin to see that the trumpet now reveals for us the heavenly scene. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So now we begin to see the throne room scene of heaven again. This is not the first time. We were introduced to this particular matter in chapter 4. John was allowed to see the great throne room of God. The final trumpet of God's people has sounded. They're signaling the completion of God's great plan of salvation. The great mystery which God has to bring all, man, all men, humankind, into relationship to Him. All those who will respond obediently in faith to His message. Not all men will do that. But all those who will repent of their sins and confess their faith and be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, in turn will be added to the church of the living God. You're baptized in water for the remission of sins, you receive the benefit of the blood of Jesus Christ. The mystery is complete. It's for everybody. 
It's not just for the Jew, it's for the Jew and the Gentile. And so that final trumpet has blown. And thus the great <clears throat> opportunity to come to God has been given. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. You see, there's fellowship with God. Uh, after this great completion is given, the wicked will be destroyed, verse 18, and in turn there is wonderful relationship there with God. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. God's promise is always before Him. See, John is allowed to see in heaven once again, just like he saw in chapter 4. And in this 11th chapter, the last portion of it, what does he see? The heavenly host worshiping and praising God for His wonderful glory and for His great wisdom in bringing all men to Christ, at least giving all men the opportunity to come to Christ. Let everyone come who will obediently come. It's up to them. It's their choice whether they'll obey the gospel or not and whether they'll live for Christ or not. All those who will obey the gospel and live for Christ will enjoy the fellowship which John sees there in verse 18 and 19. And that ark, that covenant which God has made is always before him. He never forgets it. Then God's temple, that is the fellowship, in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail, speaking of the grandeur and the greatness of that particular matter. What would the Christian think about when he sees these great verses? He's naturally going to think about the reassurance that God has given. Here the door of the temple of heaven is opened and he sees the wonderful reward that awaits the righteous. God's promise is there for you. He never forgets it. He's not going to give it and then renege on that promise. It's always there and available and will never be changed. What needs to be changed is our lives. So to help me get a better understanding of the reward that God has promised and the assurance which God has given, I thought of a number of passages that might help us tonight as I consider the matter of Revelation chapter 11. One of those passages would have to be this beautiful passage in Matthew chapter 5 in the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you... When others revile you, verse 11, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice verse 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Your reward in heaven is great. Not only is that true now. But that will be true over there. The assurance God has given the saint, even in times of terrible persecution. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and in that particular uh, passage of Scripture, 
there's a passage that gives me a lot of encouragement. In times of trouble and difficulty, when I think things are just going bad, sometimes I turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I, I notice verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labors. I receive encouragement from passages along those lines. God knows what I've done, and he doesn't forget it. There is assurance there. Turn with me to the book of Colossians. In the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, I think there's a passage you and I ought to consider. It's found for us in verse 24. This whole section, beginning in verse 18, should be studied. But verse 24 begins this way. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll receive that inheritance. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's this wonderful passage of faith. Notice how it describes it. Verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever will draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Notice that Hebrews 11, verse 6 passage. God rewards those. Now, not only is faith essential. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We must have that total confidence and assurance in our heart and our mind of who God is and who Christ is and the truthfulness of the Word of God, and we're confident and we trust it completely. But we also must understand the fact God rewards those who seek Him. And the Christian who was reading Revelation chapter 11 for the first time, and he looks at that last portion of chapter 11, and he sees all the persecution and suffering going on around him from a very pagan, wicked world empire, Rome. He's seeing the reassurance of the reward which God has for the righteous. One more, if you please, comes to us from 2 John. And the verse that I have in mind is verse 8. And in that particular passage, the Word of God says, Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. A full reward. Second John verse 8 says, Now we individually, we've got to be careful, so that you may not lose what we have worked for. It's possible to lose it. The idea of the impossibility of apostasy is foreign to the Bible. And here's one passage which says that. If we're not faithful to the end, we can lose our reward. But we want to continue to live and work and strive to be pleasing in the sight of God so that we might receive a full reward. A reward which God has in store for all of the righteous. This is what the last portion of Revelation chapter 11 is about. The last portion of chapter 11 is talking about the covenant that God has made with His people. And John sees the temple open, and the Ark of the Covenant is there. And with all of the symbolic references to the lightning and the rumbling and the thunder, the earthquake and the hail, reminds him, we will receive a full reward being faithful to God. One must be measured according to God's divine standard, obedient to the gospel, worshiping him according to his divine standard, 
and in turn living the kind of life personally that we ought to be living based on God's Word. If you're not a child of God tonight, surely this would motivate you to become one. Surely Revelation 11 would motivate you, if you've never obeyed the gospel, to repent of sin and confess your faith and be baptized into Christ, as the Bible teaches and commands. Now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Isn't it time for you to do that? If you have, but you've been unfaithful to the Word of God, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 would apply, that we need to repent of our unfaithfulness, our negligence our insincerity, our doubts, and turn back to God faithfully so that we will not fall away living faithfully every single day so as to receive a full reward. Won't you come to Christ tonight while together we stand and while we sing?